on music, the podcast dedicated to in-depth engagement with the world of sound. Brought to you by Haus der Kulturen der Welt in Berlin. Nineteen eighty-nine is the year the Berlin Wall comes down. Nineteen eighty-nine is the year a group of Black American musicians founds the Underground Resistance Collective in Detroit. Techno at the End of the Future, Episode Two, Berlin, part of the On Music podcast series produced by Haus der Kulturen der Welt. From the no future attitude of Berlin in the 80s to the futuristic sounds from the black neighborhoods of Detroit up to the persistent future shock in the era of digitalization. Black culture is a really interesting thing and Amiri Baraka gets into this quite a bit in his book Blues People where he talks about like the radio and the way that that digital media and and sort of uh, communication technologies both to territorialize and decentralize black music in such a way that yeah it can just travel long distances and like kind of transform and in the 21st century two two decades into the 21st century i see myself as kind of a centralizing point trying to pull all of these threads back together to hopefully create what amir baraka called like unity music and to hear techno be fully integrated into black popular and black maybe communal culture so like the the popular music uh, industry, but also like the on the ground like culture in the neighborhoods. DeForest Brown Jr. is a theorist and musician from Birmingham, Alabama, now based in New York City. He's the author of Assembling a Black Counterculture, a book that intends to compile an alternative viewpoint of the future from black historical analyses and a re-examination of the electronic dance music industry thus exposing the often biased views on techno and the culture surrounding it. Nineteen eighty-nine is the year that Archbishop Desmond Tutu leads South Africa's largest anti apartheid march. Techno is not a thing in South Africa. And it continues not to be a thing, although there were beginning of the 90s in Johannesburg, which had a very vibrant clubbing culture. It was just a cross-genre and a cross-breeding of uh, uh, genres, and uh, we were never that genre-specific. You are about to hear Lorato Carti, Mark Ernestus, DeForest Brown Jr., and Boris Delinsky in this episode of a podcast in two parts, co-produced by Haus de Kulturen der Welt in Berlin and Camden Arts Centre in London. Techno house DJs coming from Detroit who are old enough, they will tell you, without Ken Collier, who was this gay dude and DJing at Club Heaven, which was predominantly an LGBTIQ club, is the one that influenced how they played. When I lived in New York from 1986 till 1990, I actually had mostly contact through the beginning of House. 
like especially house music and not really something you would call techno at that time, although that techno was more like a subgenre of house. Boris Dolinsky is a DJ and record collector from Berlin, Germany. Although that term probably generated from Detroit amongst a certain amount of producers, it was actually publicized through that compilation that was released, I think, on 10 Records. And 10 Records is a subsidiary from Virgin Records, and it actually made it popular in Europe instead of the US. So that genre or that description of techno music was actually made publicly in Europe and not in America. 1989 is the year a music enthusiast opens the record store named Hardwax in Berlin. I think of late 70s, early 80s, and I did perceive the music scene in West Berlin, where I was living, as very sectarian. Uh, there was only a handful of cinema bars, and each one of them was very strict about one certain type of music all branched out from post-punk but sectarian that if you went to that place it was only that music and dress all in black and take the uh, appropriate drugs in another place it was all white walls and bright neon. Mark Anestis founded the Hardwax record store which soon became a hotbed for Berlin's burgeoning electronic club music scene. Anestos played a key role in establishing the Berlin-Detroit nexus and started creating music as one half of Basic Channel and later on as Rhythm and Sound. In the mid-90s, Basic Channel set up dub plates and mastering, which was Berlin's first mastering and vinyl cutting studio specialising in club music. Yeah, it's only when I came into Europe that these kind of uh, genre fixations became a thing and were prominent, but... Up until then, this is not how we, we clubbed. Lorato Kati, a.k.a. Lakuti, is a DJ and label owner born in Johannesburg, South Africa, living in Berlin. Residing in Berlin since 2014, Kati has launched Bring Down the Walls, a community-based project aiming at giving more context to club culture and spotlighting the black and LGBTQI plus communities that have birthed it. We did have a very vibrant and exciting club scene in South Africa, it, it, mainly also in the LGBTIQ community. It was at the forefront of birthing some kind of movement in terms of clubbing, at least for me. Those were the clubs that put me through to this music. And coming to Europe, I mean, I was in London for 15 years. There was a much more professional and a bigger scene. In the late 80s, it was big record companies out of a sudden cashing in on a new trend coming from the States, signing all these little labels or licensing um, records for compilations. There were tons of compilations coming out and actually people remaking house music or taking over that style in Europe, in England and Belgium and Holland and even in uh, in Germany. I mean, we had out of a sudden 
German house music in the late 80s already. It became like instantly also very commercialized. Boris Dolinsky is a DJ and record collector. In the mid-80s, he moved to New York. Four years later, he returned to Berlin, shortly after the wall had come down, and started working at Mark Anestis's Hardwax record store. At Hardwax, Boris was instrumental in establishing direct connections to independent, artist-run record labels in Detroit and other American cities. In the weeks and months after we opened, you know, when DJs started to show up, only then we really realized that the genres that we had in the shop, that this had the biggest potential because it was happening in real time, other than soul and funk and a lot of the reggae stuff. Uh, it was not on major label like a lot of the hip-hop stuff. And because it was mostly on artist labels, producer labels, small independent labels, there was the biggest gap between demand and supply. You know, like with East Berlin, like being like this, like open, rundown, pretty much, you know, like anything goes space to Detroit, which is like almost a de 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 destroyed city that was totally abandoned by like half of its population already. Very cold, very empty, very dark, and a ghost town. A lot of the buildings, even on the main roads, collapsing, burned out, boarded up. To me, it seemed to make total sense. Dark music from a dark city. Kreuzberg 36 was surrounded by the wall on three sides and that means some of the locations that became available were buildings that were abandoned because they were so close to the border on the east side and those places were in walking distance from Kreuzberg where a lot of people from that audience were living. We didn't know the war was coming down. When we first opened, we had a lot of used and rare soul and funk records. We had a, a reggae and dub section. We had a little hip hop section and we had a small house section. The few things that were available at the time. That when the wall came down, that out of a sudden everything had to come down because so many things out of a sudden became possible and people became more free. And every weekend there was something new happening. Every weekend there were new places, new locations, and new things being tried out and celebrated. When I was working at music magazines, I found that no one was interested, not only in this perspective of what, say, the Detroit producers were, had gone through, they didn't want to even go back to really look at what was happening. And that's what I found when I was writing the book is that all the documentation is there. There's many films, there's so many articles, there's all these books. But what I find is that none of them ever considered the actual live situation of Black people. And I guess my point is that techno is an artifact of Black youth years after all of the Black resistance leaders were murdered, coming to terms with 
living in a new middle-class wealth status, living, also integrating with white people in America for the first time. And I, I don't want to say relate to this, but I fully comprehend this idea of integration because I did not grow up around white people because of things like redlining. And, you know, the white American population will literally take all the resources to another side of a mountain, set up a like legal property line and go, okay, no Walmarts can be like open on this side of the property line. We are the ones who get all the shopping malls. We get all the grocery stores. And, and this zone here is where all the black people will like go to school. And I don't think a lot of people, especially writing about techno have really thought about what it means when someone like Theo Parrish is like, this was black music. They're, they're saying like, look, after a massive race riot in 1967, the white people said, fuck this, we're leaving. And we're taking all of our money with us. And then techno happens. Coming into London, this is when I began going out to parties. There was a seminal techno party, which went on for a very long time. I mean, I think close to 15, 20 years. The party was called Lost this was for every techno geek. Back in those days, you didn't have social media. We had a kind of like a digest, like 313, which was dedicated to followers of Detroit music and Little Detroit. All these forums were online forums, digests uh, run from the UK, except for 313, it was from the US but it connected all people that were following the music from all over the world. When I think about the Detroit-Berlin axis, it was interesting because a lot of the people, like DJ Tanith and, and, and so forth, would be like, yeah, we heard these Marshall Jefferson tracks on the radio, or we were at like a military base like dancing to disco music, and it was so great. We didn't have an image of who was playing this music. It was just like anonymous like music, which is fascinating on a few levels because this happened in America too, where I thought Kraftwerk was black until about 2010. Like heard Kraftwerk my whole life and just did not know that they were German because I, I didn't look at them. I didn't, there weren't record stores for me to go to, to like pick up a Kraftwerk record and like look at it. And same thing with like Art of Noise. Like I thought Moments in Love was like a black song and it plays on black radio stations like every night at 10 PM. And yeah, I found out that they were like, some British people signed to like ZTT records. And I, I just blew my mind. And so I, I really empathize with the German situation with techno and house and where they, you know, where you all kind of got this music secondhand through, through these trade routes. Speaking of make techno black again, in those days, it was understood that techno coming from the States was made by black artists. And I think rave culture is like an accumulation of actually different music styles, including house, techno, and because it's actually Britain who invented rave culture. So that came just a few years after Detroit happened and New York. So you can't really connect rave culture as one thing being part of techno. Techno is kind of part of rave culture. In the late 90s, Carti relocated to London, where she founded the Zud electronic label and her own imprint, Uzuri Recordings. 
accompanied by a booking and management agency in order to nurture mainly black artists in an industry that provides limited opportunities for them. Berlin is a lot more narrower in terms of uh, music perspective and which kind of still shocks me, if I'm honest, because for me, music needs to breathe in its whole essence. And I think this is kind of a current thing of uh, being so genre-specific. Of course, 91, the club Trizzo opened, and that made Berlin a different place already, because immediately with the opening of Trezor and also a few other clubs that opened right around the same time, like Planet was maybe the most important other one. Those were the right kind of places for this music. Mark Ernesto's, in those circles he moved, they really revered and respected what was coming out of Detroit. I think ultimately there was kind of a mutual respect and a symbiotic relationship. I mean, Trezor is a perfect example of that, that uh, Detroit was a, a huge part of Trezor. I think firmly establishing a conversation and material exchange around the Detroit Berlin axis actually take this idea of techno being a cultural music to the next step and maybe actually formalize a true global techno power. DeForest Brown Jr. produces digital audio and extended media under the name Speaker Music. He's also a representative of the Make Techno Black Again campaign. Business is modern warfare. And with the sort of increasing, we'll say tax reforms, the, the inflation, the dance music industry is a sort of glut excess of that and is, was a new form of, of warfare. And actually, I think it's quite interesting on the flip side to see Germany actually institutionalize techno to sit with this cultural music and to kind of go, okay, this has been here for a minute. Let's like establish techno as a cultural music. And I'm all for that. I, I want to try to take that and to apply that in America, which is something that is happening. I mean, you have a uh, Wajid in Detroit working with the underground uh, music Academy, which Tresor is involved in. The concept of, you know, doing party drugs on the weekend was like the most common thing in, in Berlin, but that didn't exist in Detroit because there was no party scene, but also doing drugs other than smoking weed basically means smoking crack. If you do crack, that's it. There is this festival movement there that uh, was created by Afro-American DJs and producers, but then it was taken out of their hands as much as I know. And now it's done by some white corporation or white company and you have techno in Detroit for three days in a year and then there's no techno in Detroit. There's no club, there's nowhere anywhere to go, there's no Afro-American parties with techno music. It is totally, there's nothing happening there all during the year. It's only three days of the year where we can party to European DJs playing techno in Detroit. I mean, it's so weird that it never really grew on that culture. 
I always thought Detroit would be the one place on earth that would never ever be gentrified. I couldn't believe how it how it actually changed. Because honestly, I held off for the last 10 years on writing about techno because I, I too thought it was over. I thought everyone kind of understood and I wanted to see the future and wanted to be a part of the future of electronic music and to see what would happen. And instead, what I saw was a lot of corporations, a lot of magazines and up and coming young DJs try to well engage in like a, a money grab, engage in kind of a, a land grab of this somewhat falsified history of the of the second summer of love in England and the love parade in uh, Germany and to take these, what to me were like very large geopolitical um, geopolitically fucked up situations and turn them into a marketing campaign towards a false American ideal of, you know, peace, love and revolution. I think there is a point to be made about the future because part of why the music exploded like it did was that there was a dynamic that for all the young people in the East, it was the first time they could openly and actively participate in a global youth culture or music culture. So obviously that contributed a lot to the dynamic and the enthusiasm. I think these narratives that have become very much more or even more prominent currently. And I think that's down to a lack of education. I think it's down to the fact that clubbing has become this billion dollar industry and the focus is on consuming rather than partaking. Because if you partake in culture, you respect the culture, you dig deeper into the culture, you're interested, you know, you want to feed yourself as much as possible, you geek out, you know, as simple as that, into these things. But right now, there's this kind of a hedonistic material way of clubbing, which is very removed from, you know, those spaces being about those on the margins of society. It started with a strong desire for empowerment and self-determination, with a very strong independent spirit. And when it became a mass phenomenon in Europe, it kind of turned into the opposite. Now, one thing that is really important in us moving forward in a progressive way is featuring and giving a seat to Africa and to also start to credit that Africa gave us rhythm is what roots us also as a diasporic black movement and as well as American uh, music has draws a lot from Africa, but we never center Africa in these conversations. And I think the future needs to recognize Africa's continuing contribution and its offerings in the past. And right now, for me personally, I think that whereas in Europe and the West, by and large, there's not many new ideas in terms of sound and 
there is something coming out of Africa. I hear it in South Africa where you turn around and say, wow, there's something new, there's something fresh. So the question is, how do we combine, how do we join these threads to bring Africa to the table and which in turn will benefit us in terms of bringing other creative ideas into the fore. And I think that's something that is often forgotten when we talk about techno and the development of trance music. All the other like electronic music genres of the hardcore continuum that came thereafter is that these things happen because of a fascination with technology and a, and a secular fasc fascination with like godly acts coming from from man. And we're at a point where people are clearly saturated there are no new real technologies and we're even getting to the point where people are tearing down 5g towers and going no more technology to take this a step further specifically in america because i can't necessarily speak for europe you see this divide between the northern states and the southern states in regards to vaccination rates and COVID. the literal same line that was fought in the civil war where the northern states which were trading actively with europe and trading like steel and all these you know industrializing they tried to tell the people, the slave owners of the South, that, you know, you should update, you should stop using human labor and like use, you know, these machines like us. And the South refused the future. They, they did not want technology. They wanted this primitive, uh, crude, cruel, and just sinister, like form of inconvenient labor over the convenience of technology. I think it's really important that we tell our own stories and we begin to have those platforms allowing us to be able to tell our own stories because there is a black perspective and it's connected to our oppression, you know, because uh, those things are not separate. This music is more than just uh, something you listen to and party to. It's it's a lifeline and it it will always be a lifeline for us. It's been a lifeline for our ancestors that were taken from Africa. For example, if you connect the music back to disco, to gospel, gospel has its roots in Africa. You know, there's there's a pathway and music is our foundation in many ways. This is something that has glued us together. So it means a lot more than partying and losing your mind on a weekend. When techno is expanded to like the larger black community, people are hearing techno and not necessarily realizing it. And that goes for trap music as well. I mean, they're using like 808 drum machines. They're using like a lot of the same production techniques. For me, the interesting music comes from understanding the references and digging deep into the culture. Techno at the End of the Future, Episode 2, part of the On Music podcast series produced by House de Culture and Develt. Perhaps we are at the end of that economic future and should be refinancing the actual stocks itself, the dead stock of the, the music vinyls, towards a new future of thinking about techno as a technological music and, and that's that's what I want to do is like is take everything back to where Juan was and, and I don't even want to say back because that's it, I'll, I'll say stripping down to the basics and just getting back to the actual fascination with 
sounds coming out of speakers, coming out of these machines and, and starting over with listening to this technological music instead of using it as a, as a social lubricant. With DeForest Brown Jr., Lorato Carti, Mark Anestis, and Boris Dolinsky. Having a space because in the larger society there were not people that were accepted. So having these spaces was somewhere where you could let your hair down without thinking about a cop wanting to beat you up or thinking about those other things. Uh, And now I'm afraid we're in an era where it really is about consuming rather than partaking. That was On Music, the podcast dedicated to in-depth engagement with the world of sounds. Brought to you by Haus der Kulturen der Welt in Berlin. Narration by Christine Kakari. Production by Julia Vorkefeld. Recording by Matthias Hardy-Hartenberger. On music sound logo by Alexandra Cardenas. Music by Model 500, Chaos and Underground Resistance. Interviews, script and concept by Arno Raffiner.